described by the United States as the largest and most deadly Al-Qaeda network in the world, Al-Shabaab has been battling for control of Somalia for over 15 years, whilst also conducting terrorist attacks in neighbouring nations. Despite the efforts of the Somali government, the United Nations, African Union and foreign partners such as the United States and Turkey, Al-Shabaab remains a potent force. I think that Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, has unambiguously emerged as the epicenter of the jihadist movement now. In this episode, I speak with Professor Trisha Bacon, a veteran of the US Department of State, a counterterrorism expert, and author of the book Terror in Transition, Leadership and Succession in Terrorist Organizations. We discuss the present situation in Somalia, how we got here, and how and if the Somali government and international partners can finally defeat the terrorist group. The history of Somalia over the last 20 years has been equally heartbreaking. Al-Shabaab have said that 167 Ethiopian soldiers were killed in the attack. Al-Shabaab continues to conduct attacks, certainly there in Somalia. More pictures are still emerging of the shocking massacre as the Al-Shabaab extremists systematically hunted down and murdered defenseless students. Al-Shabaab emerged as part of the so-called Islamic Courts Union, which seized control of much of the country in 2006, before fighting a protracted war with the central government and the interventionary forces from Ethiopia. The group formally became affiliated with Al-Qaeda in 2012. Trisha, obviously Somalia has been one of the places that's been a focus on the so-called war on terror for a long time now. But in the last year or so, we've seen an uptick in U.S. activity in the area with drone strikes and such things. Does that suggest that Somalia right now is seen as a particularly volatile place where potential threats are coming from? Or with countries like Mali and Burkina Faso, who also have terrorist problems, having gravitated away from the West and looked to Russia to help deal with their issues... And with the U.S. having withdrawn from Afghanistan, is the focus more on Somalia simply because it's one target where it's easier for the U.S. to aggressively address the terrorist threat at this point? U.S. airstrikes this year is probably mostly a function of a U.S. desire to support the current Somali government offensive against the organization. It made some significant progress against al-Shabaab last year in particular by exploiting some local uprisings against the group. And the Somali government, Somali military has been trying to sort of press that advantage against al-Shabaab since then, with some setbacks in that as well. So I think this is mostly about the conditions in Somalia, in particular, a desire to support the current Somali government and to support the offensive that's been underway for a little over a year. The conflict's been going on for about 15 years now, and, you know, huge numbers of foreign troops and Somali troops have been trying to tackle this group. But whenever I read estimates of the strength of al-Shabaab, they range, you know, 5,000 to 6,000 members, 7,000 to 8,000 members. Are those kind of reports actually indicative of its real strength? Or is that just simply the number of people who are actively armed and actively engaging in it, but not reflecting the fact that there are other individuals who maybe supply safe houses or financing, or individuals who see their brother, friend, neighbor get killed today, 
and suddenly they pick up arms tomorrow. A lot of these estimates of the number of al-Shabaab members or fighters to not really be based on all that much. When you try to probe how people have come up with them, it seems like these are numbers that were adopted years ago and they just have a way of continuing over time. That may be a reasonable reflection of the number of fighters, as you say, in the organization. But that's only one portion of this group, right? It's an insurgent organization. It's a regional terrorist organization. It's a shadow government. It's a mafia. It has so much infiltration and penetration of Somali society that it's impossible to know who is, quote unquote, an al-Shabaab member or even who might be doing something on behalf of al-Shabaab today and has other allegiances at other times, who is being coerced into cooperating with the group, who's being paid to cooperate with the group. So I find those kinds of numbers to really underestimate what kind of threat we're dealing with in Somalia and the region writ large when it comes to al-Shabaab size. The Somali government, currently run by President Hassan Sheikh Mohammed, Earlier this year suggested that before the end of the year, Al-Shabaab would be wiped off the face of the earth. I know that previously in 2012, when the same president was in office, he had made similar statements, but over a, you know, a two-year potential period. Is there any basis in reality to believe that the end of this year, or even the end of next year, when African forces are expected to pull out, that in fact Al-Shabaab will be decimated and no longer a threat? Yes, I think the statements by the Somali government about eradicating al-Shabaab and defeating al-Shabaab basically in any time frame are unrealistic, let alone by the end of the year. This is an organization that's just so deeply rooted in Somali society that there can't be this kind of simple military defeat model applied, just as you mentioned was the case in Afghanistan. I think that the African Union forces pullout is much more about there being fatigue with the mission and there being a sense that the mission isn't, it's basically been a defensive one for quite a while at this point. And there's not necessarily the same appetite for donors to finance the mission. So I would be hesitant to characterize the shift in the African Union posture as a endorsement that the Somali security forces are really ready to tackle this on their own or that they can defeat quote unquote al-Shabaab in that kind of unrealistic time frame. In places like Afghanistan, Syria, Iraq, we've seen huge numbers of foreign fighters who've been drawn into these conflicts where you have these jihadist groups. Have we seen that type of activity in Somalia with people flooding in from elsewhere wanting to participate in a broader jihadist conflict with the West? After the Ethiopian invasion, there was this kind of rallying to Somalia, right? When a conflict starts like that, it's sort of the new exciting theater. There definitely was an influx of foreign fighters, but they were both transnational and regional at that time. So they were coming from Europe, they were coming from the United States, they were coming from, from all kinds of places. What we've seen over time is that the foreign fighter cadre in al-Shabaab is really primarily regional at this point. So it is there are mostly Kenyans, Tanzanians, Ugandans, some Ethiopians. It's basically individuals coming from other parts of the region. We also occasionally find out about Yemenis coming into Somalia to work with al-Shabaab, usually as a function of al-Shabaab's alliance with al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. So there's definitely still a foreign fighter cadre that participates in the insurgency in Somalia. 
But you raised uh, the point that there's other places now, even in the region, that foreign fighters are attracted to. So Al-Shabaab has to sort of compete for foreign fighters with particularly the Islamic State components in Mozambique or in the Democratic Republic of Congo. So it is not the only option for foreign fighters now, but it has been able to maintain a pretty steady cadre of foreign fighters. Obviously, Al-Shabaab is affiliated with Al-Qaeda, and we know that Osama bin Laden and his affiliates have this idea of this global jihad. Are the people in Al-Shabaab and in Somalia, are they focused on that same type of global quest to form some kind of huge caliphate? Or are they more concerned specifically with what's going on in their own country? I think that at this point, most of the organization and most of its appeal is about the situation in Somalia. I think there's layers to it. It's partially wanting to expel foreign forces, the African Union forces. It's in part dissatisfaction with the Somali government. It's in part this idea of a greater Somalia, which are parts of the region where Somalis predominantly reside, but which is not technically part of Somalia because during the colonial period, it was divided into these other countries. I do think there's still a cadre within Al-Shabaab that has the broader ideological ambitions and that Al-Shabaab has remained committed to Al-Qaeda. And I think that was really clearly evidenced in 2014, 2015, when the Islamic State rose and was such a compelling part of the jihadist movement. The Islamic State tried really hard to get al-Shabaab to defect from al-Qaeda to the Islamic State, publicly put a lot of pressure on the organization and really sort of tried to pressure al-Shabaab to defect from al-Qaeda, and al-Shabaab wouldn't do so. So there is a sort of deep historical relationship between al-Qaeda and al-Shabaab. I think rather than pursuing al-Qaeda's broader sort of global caliphate mission, What al-Shabaab will do sometimes is conduct attacks that it would have conducted anyway, and then kind of label them in ways that are associated with al-Qaeda's agenda. So you're right. I think it's overwhelmingly driven by the situation in Somalia, its sort of ambitions in Somalia, a bit in the region, especially for the countries that are part of the African Union forces. But I can't kind of dismiss that there are still parts of the organization that are loyal to al-Qaeda, to its vision and who have maintained that commitment, especially through that relationship that I mentioned with al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. Al-Shabaab has long been close to that part of al-Qaeda. So that also enhances its ties with al-Qaeda at a time when al-Qaeda core, of course, is is pretty hard for al-Shabaab to be in any kind of regular interaction with. When you look at the map, Somalia is just across the Gulf of Aden from Yemen, which has been another major flashpoint with terrorism. People like Al-Aki, the American al-Qaeda leader who was killed there, And more recently, we've had this proxy war between the Saudis and Iran going on there. Has that conflict and all the money and weapons and fighters flowing into Yemen, has that in any way spread across the Gulf of Yemen and had an impact on the Somali conflict? It's interesting. I haven't seen that the fortunes of the conflict in Yemen have necessarily had spillover effects in Somalia. Like there isn't a clear relationship between an increase in al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula strength and an increase in al-Shabaab strength. I think that's in part because al-Shabaab is really so self-sufficient at this point. It's able to generate more than enough funds. It has a budgetary surplus. It has sufficient improvised explosives capability that it can conduct the kind of operations that it wants to conduct uh, regularly and has enough manpower. What we've seen is these somewhat unusual 
influxes of capability into Somalia every few years, which are probably traceable to Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. For example, there was a laptop bomb that was put on a plane in 2016. That was not the kind of improvised explosives capability that al-Shabaab had, but it is the kind that al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula had. So we see these kinds of technical transfers of capability or influxes of capability that, of course, are always very dangerous when you see them crossing the two conflicts. But al-Shabaab has not really depended on al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula or the situation in Yemen for its continued strength. How's al-Shabaab financed? Are they getting money from expat Somalis, from fellow terrorist groups like al-Qaeda and so forth? Where does the money come from to finance this multi-year operation? Al-Shabaab over the years has turned into this very effective mafia-like extortion system. And of course, they call it taxation. But essentially, al-Shabaab at this point is taxing all of southern Somalia's economy, all industries, all businesses, everybody pays al-Shabaab, even in government-controlled areas. For a long time, the group was able to import tax on import and exports into the port of Mogadishu. So it has been very effective at being able to generate the information about economic activity, even real estate and built new buildings. They tax that kind of activity as well. And of course, they send you a tax bill. And if you don't pay, you will find something bad has happened to you. Maybe you get kidnapped. Maybe your family gets kidnapped. Maybe they blow up your business. And so they've successfully sort of cowed most of the Southern Somali population into paying taxes. And in some senses, it has also succeeded in providing some services that the government doesn't provide and people perhaps more willingly sometimes paying those taxes as well. And what I'm referring to is, for example, that Al-Shabaab will control a series of roads. And when it controls roads, it puts up a checkpoint. And as a person transiting, you get to the checkpoint, you pay once, you get a receipt, and then you can drive on that road as long as you need to in correspondence with what you've paid. Where if you go on a government-controlled road, there might be multiple checkpoints. You'll have to pay different amounts. There's uh, multiple different actors who will tax you. So a lot of what it's doing to generate funds is this sort of coercive extortion, but it also has carved out some niches where it's outperforming the government in being not as predatory or at least more predictable in how it's going to tax people. And so there's that dual element of it. And that's really where it's relying on for its funds, which is, is something of a sad statement that it is able to have a budgetary surplus every year, basically for recent years through taxation, while the Somali government remains very dependent on foreign donors in order to generate enough funds. I'm from England. When I was a kid growing up, we had frequent IRA terrorist attacks in Britain. And some of the figures directly responsible for those attacks, people like Martin McGuinness, eventually got to a point where they were blended into conventional politics and became elected politicians as the peace process unfolded. Do you think al-Shabaab have an interest or any kind of desire to at some point try to integrate into the mainstream and have more of a legitimate presence as an actual political entity? Or do you think they're quite content to have the kind of society that they have built within Somalia? By and large, al-Shabaab has not shown much appetite for kind of mainstreaming or joining the political process. 
But having said that, the group has been operating in a position of relative strength in recent years. And I don't think when a militant group is in a position of strength that you necessarily see them being more conciliatory. I think that there has not been nearly enough effort dedicated to trying to open up some kind of channels of negotiation. And I think what often happens is there's discussion of negotiation when the government has some momentum and things are going well. And it's not really a negotiation at that point. They say things like, I recently heard when I was in Mogadishu this summer, we'll negotiate with them after their defeat. That isn't obviously when you negotiate, right? And I think that the trick of negotiations is getting the, the channels and the mechanisms in place so that when there are opportunities to negotiate, they can be capitalized on. But instead, negotiations are just so consistently a secondary thought. It's a very military-centric strategy. And that's what foreign donors are more inclined to do. That's what Somali government is more inclined to do. And I think, unfortunately, this isn't a conflict that can be won militarily. It took me a long time to come around to the idea of negotiating with al-Shabaab, given sort of the horrendousness of the violence that they've inflicted. But I don't really see another option. So... I think that there has to be an effort to negotiate with the organization, even if it's likely to fail, at least to try it, because this military approach just basically ends up feeling like you're going in a circle over and over again. And the organization doesn't really come out any weaker at the end of the day. Obviously, al-Shabaab and al-Qaeda have a belief in this particular extreme version of Islam. But if they suddenly went away tomorrow and everybody in Somalia and everyone in al-Shabaab suddenly embraced a moderate form of Islam. Does the problem go away? Or will then people just look to another alternative, Marxism, fascism, whatever else offers people some kind of abrupt, violent way of changing the wider societal issues? Right. And I think what you're getting at is that there is the fundamental grievances that are underlying this problem. And I think that there's a lot of accuracy in that. And even thinking about al-Shabaab, Yes, it has a jihadist ideology. Yes, it has an extreme Salafist interpretation of Islam. But that isn't what the group's strength is. The group's strength is capitalizing on the failures and the weaknesses of the Somali state, right? This is a place that's had a failed state for three decades now. This is a place where people desperately seek order, security, mechanisms to mediate conflicts and justice. And while al-Shabaab is in so many ways brutal and violent with the population, it does offer things like a judicial system where people go and they bring their disputes and they bring crimes and it decides those cases with relatively little corruption, relatively quickly. And so it's tapping into a grievance that it doesn't have very much to do with its ideology. And al-Shabaab is also very, been very effective at manipulating the, the clan dynamics and the clan conflicts within Somalia, which again is not about Islam. So there is a sort of core part of this that is much more about failures to address grievances and long-standing tensions and disputes within the sort of failed state context that al-Shabaab is operating. It isn't just about the ideology by any means. And if al-Shabaab went away tomorrow, there would be plenty of other sources of conflict and violence because of these broader conditions. We've seen a number of attacks in other countries from al-Shabaab. Specifically, Kenya has been particularly hard hit. Looking at those surrounding countries, though, and obviously there's been a lot of animosity with Ethiopia after their involvement in Somalia. Al-Shabaab seem to have had more success in some countries than others. Specifically, Kenya, not so much in Ethiopia. 
Is that indicative of factors like a Somali diaspora within those countries being larger or smaller? Does it have to do with the nature of those governments? So if you have a more authoritarian regime, it might be easier to clamp down on terrorist threats, whereas if you have a more open government, it may be more difficult. What are the factors that have harmed or enabled al-Shabaab in terms of their activities outside Somalia? That has been a source of a lot of debate. I think Uganda has the advantage in that it doesn't share a border, and so penetrating into Uganda is more difficult. But Analysts who study al-Shabaab have long questioned why they've been so much more successful in Kenya than in Ethiopia, especially given, as you mentioned, the historical enmity towards Ethiopia and its role in the 2006 invasion, etc. It has always been a little bit of a puzzle. And I think the main answers that people have pointed to are our state capability. But even when the Ethiopians were immersed in basically a civil war, Al-Shabaab wasn't able to really penetrate that effectively into Ethiopia. So it is partially a question of government capability. Of course, Kenya has been a pretty thriving democracy, and sometimes there are certain forms of security activities that are more difficult in that kind of democracy. But I also think that it's an exploitation of grievances. Al-Shabaab has been able to tap into some of the Muslim Christian tensions in Kenya sort of position itself as a champion of Muslims who are disenfranchised in a variety of ways, as well as ethnic Somalis who are disenfranchised in a variety of ways. I think it's a complex answer to that question, but it's not for lack of people really puzzling over that over the last you know, 15 or 16 years. Is there a significant danger that what's going on in Somalia now could easily spread in a big impactful way to the neighboring countries? There is a danger of al-Shabaab being able to control territory. Right now, it controls a large swath of territory in southern Somalia. It doesn't control any major cities, but it does control large swaths of rural areas. And in recent years, we have seen the group try to press that into Kenya and try to capitalize on the environment there to bring some of that same territorial control and some of those same limited forms of governance that it offers. And I think that is a particular danger in Kenya, which has also been the main country that al-Shabaab has tried to recruit and strike in. So it's ostensibly, it attacks basically any country that's contributing to the African Union mission or contributing military forces to Somalia. But Kenya has really borne the brunt of that. And a lot of that violence occurs along the border between Kenya and Somalia, but it also, of course, has reached into other places, including Nairobi. So I do think that that is a constant danger for Kenya in particular. Al-Shabaab has tried to press into Ethiopia, especially in the last year. It launched a large-scale incursion into Ethiopia. The group, while more motivated in some ways to oppose Ethiopia, has not had the same kind of success there in conducting tax and recruiting, let alone sort of establishing a presence where it could really contest Ethiopian government control. So I don't think we're likely to see that in Ethiopia or Djibouti or Uganda, but Kenya remains the most concerning of the countries in East Africa for al-Shabaab to gain a greater foothold in that way. In recent years, we've seen groups, most notably Boko Haram, who are affiliated with ISIS, spreading from Nigeria into Mali, Niger, Burkina Faso, also down in southeastern Africa into Mozambique. So when you look at the map, there seem to be these Islamic extremist forces converging sort of on the center of Africa, where you have al-Shabaab, obviously, 
Is there a danger that these groups could at some point converge and create some singular group or a federation of, you know, jihadist extremists that could try to carve out some massive caliphate right across Africa? I think that Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, has unambiguously emerged as the epicenter of the jihadist movement now. So I think there's really alarming trends in the number of fatalities, the number of attacks, the number of organizations, the number of countries affected by any measure you would look at threat. Sub-Saharan Africa is in serious trouble in terms of the growth of jihadism. There is still a schism between the Al-Qaeda-affiliated jihadists and the Islamic State-affiliated jihadists. And Al-Shabaab in particular was very brutal in its approach to the Islamic State when challenged by it. So the Islamic State tried to get Al-Shabaab to defect. It would not defect from Al-Qaeda. And there was a breakaway faction of the organization who decided to go with the Islamic State. And Al-Shabaab basically tried to wipe out anyone that it could. It killed, it arrested. Some people even went to the government to turn themselves in rather than face the Al-Shabaab campaign against them. So Al-Shabaab, strangely, is sort of a bulwark against the Islamic State and has really limited the Islamic State expansion in Somalia. It's really isolated to this northern part in Puntland and has not been able to expand. So I don't think we would see Al-Shabaab linking up with any of the Islamic State franchises or affiliates in Africa. But I do think we have the a nightmare scenario that you're talking about with this spread and expansion of jihadism in sub-Saharan Africa writ large, that is very much underway now. Um, I don't think it gets enough attention here in the United States where there's just this sense of having moved on from counterterrorism. This is not where our attention is. This is not where our policies are, are focused. This is where resources are focused. It's about China, right? It's about Russia, who also matter in sub-Saharan Africa when you talk about the jihadist threat. But I don't think this has gotten sufficient appreciation, at least here in the U.S. Looking more broadly at jihadism in Africa, we have seen countries like Mali, Niger, Burkina Faso and their cooperation with the French government and to the lesser extent the U.S. and turn to Russia and the Wagner Group to try to help tackle extremism. At the same time, economically, we've seen China getting more heavily involved in countries like Ethiopia and Kenya. Is there a focus on these jihadi groups looking at Russia and China as the next wave of colonialism and these powers that are going to exploit or intervene in their countries? Is there any kind of sense of targeting them now that the French, the Americans have had to pull back in some areas? I think we are entering into a new phase where jihadists are grappling with, as you mentioned, the Russian and Chinese presence. Thus far, it has been more apparent with the Russians because of the way that they operate, right? They're directly involved militarily through Wagner and are involved in a way that only exacerbate grievances, that only exacerbate the conflict. So that's been, I think, clearest with the Russians so far. And we do see some shift of jihadist attention towards the Russians, towards Wagner as a result. Thus far, we haven't seen the same kind of shift towards the Chinese. And it may be in part because of how the Chinese operate. They're operating in this more subtle kind of economic big projects. So we haven't seen jihadists turning their attention towards China in Africa, at least at this point, the way, especially in the Sahel, we're seeing them shift towards the Russians. But there is this kind of multi-layered dynamic going on of competition between what the, the terminology here is the near peer competition 
right? At the same time, it's this dramatically expanding jihadist threat. And I don't think that any of the, the major powers who are operating in the subcontinent are going to be able to ignore the jihadist threat. It is going to be a major concern for local governments. It's also going to be a major security concern, and it's going to constrain their ability to operate. It is going to be a level of this competition that we're seeing in sub-Saharan Africa. When the United States finally pulled out of Afghanistan, the Taliban quickly seized control and the United States decided to seize the financial assets of the Taliban in the United States. Obviously that has huge ramifications for the people of Afghanistan, but the logic being, we don't want to turn that money over to a regime of that nature. More recently we had controversy where the US freed $6 billion of funds that was Iranian that we had previously seized. But at the same time, in China, we have Uyghurs in concentration camps. And you think about over time people like Pinochet in Chile, who we've worked closely with and seen as an ally. And then obviously we have Saudi Arabia, the country that killed Khashoggi violently in the Turkish embassy, who we have strong relations with. When it comes to Africa, though, we seem to have more of an issue dealing with the military junta ruling Mali or the one ruling Niger. Do you think that there's a different standard applied to African countries versus other countries around the world in terms of who we will befriend and who we will refuse to cooperate with? It may ultimately be a question at the end of the day of cold, hard interests. That at some point, the value in alienating a country is no longer as great as the value of engaging them like in the example that you talked about with China. And I think that you can see that in some relationships with countries that whose regimes are pretty repressive or have ideologies that are pretty problematic. And there is engagement with them versus countries that are alienated seemingly for some of the same reasons. So I think that there is this sort of tendency, especially now, to frame things as like democracy versus autocracy, right, in the U.S. competition with China. But if you look more closely, not all of the countries aligned with the U.S. are democracies in this, or nominally aligned with the U.S. in this. I think that at the end of the day, it is more galvanizing, and it's, there's a lot to applying values and ideologically based arguments for why certain countries have to be alienated. Um, or have to be isolated, but a lot of it, much more of it is about interests than about that ideology. Immigration has been a big talking point in American politics for a long time, but more recently in Europe, after the Syrian conflict and the Ukraine conflict, there's been much talk about immigration and huge numbers of refugees coming into countries, which has caused a lot of consternation and disagreement among the European nations. But looking at a place like Somalia, aside from all the other problems they have, there's also the issue of climate. They already suffer from severe famines and climate change seems to be making these things worse. Is that something that people in Europe and more broadly in the West should be thinking about? Like, hey, wait a minute conditions are going to deteriorate in this country, it's going to be harder for people, and this will lead to more conflict, this will lead to more extremists. Is this climate change something we should be looking at in terms of finding remedies for places like Somalia? Absolutely. I think climate change is really going to exacerbate the conflicts in Africa, but in particular, the jihadist ones. 
in the places where jihadists are operating and gaining strength are also places that are really going to be affected by climate change. And we see that in particular in Somalia, where we're in this sort of cycle of like droughts and famine and people being displaced. Ultimately, when you have a government that can't even provide basic services for its people, let alone sort of the depth of services required to manage climate change or even mitigate climate change going forward, it is another factor that's going to make these issues other countries' problems as well. And there can be, uh, you know, that same kind of isolationist mentality in the United States. Those are problems over there. We don't need to invest our resources in them. But you're absolutely right that too many of these issues are interlinked and interact with one another in ways that don't allow you to just keep them all out um, with strict border or immigration policies. The need will simply be too great in some of these places and the insecurity will drive people to do desperate things. And so it isn't something that we can safely, and you know, in the U.S., say is, is across an ocean. It is going to be something that continues to affect the United States. Earlier this year, I spoke with French terrorism expert Vincent Foucher about Boko Haram, the ISIS affiliate based in Nigeria. You can find that episode in my back catalogue. And in January, I'll be interviewing Jason Wright, the US military attorney who had the impossible task of defending the indefensible when he was tasked with representing 9-11 mastermind Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. And staying in the Middle East, I'll also be speaking with Eric Maddox, the man responsible for capturing Saddam Hussein.